Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. For today's podcast, we again have the opportunity to hear from Margaret Garb, Associate Professor of History here at Washington University in St. Louis. In our first episode featuring Dr. Garb, she described life in Chicago at the end of the 19th century and helped us understand how industrialization shaped American cities. Today we'll return to turn-of-the-century Chicago, but we'll focus on labor and reform. As we've already heard, urban working conditions during this period could be bleak, dangerous, and violent. Today we'll learn about how workers responded and the types of reforms that arose. Dr. Garb will describe the rise of organized labor, the role of progressive activists, and more. In our last episode with Dr. Garb, she talked about how new downtown shopping areas created urban spaces in which women could be away from the home, allowing for shifting gender roles. Garb's recent research focuses on the rise of African-American politics in Chicago, so I asked her if during the late 19th century, race relations were also changing in the city. Yes and no. It's an interesting question about how industrialization, especially in the North, affects the lives of black Americans. For the most part, industry would not hire black men for industrial jobs. So these are really hard jobs, long hours, dangerous working conditions, but they paid better than most of the service occupations that were available to black men. So for the most part, black men were not able to get jobs in the packing houses, not able to get jobs in industry in Chicago, really until World War I, when enough veterans went overseas to fight and when immigration from Europe came to a kind of abrupt halt in 1914. And then finally, industry needed black workers. They hired black workers largely as strike breakers. And that's how black men get access to industrial jobs. Um, there's some debate among scholars about what this meant. I mean, black men certainly understood that being a strikebreaker was a sort of strategic move to gain a job in industry that could help to raise the standard of living for yourself and your family. It was also really dangerous because white workers would attack strikebreakers. And there's enormous amount of labor violence in this period, both between white workers and the police and state militias and private security forces, but also between white workers and black workers as white workers attack black strike breakers who are being brought from the rural South to take jobs in industry that white workers had held. Because they were shut out from higher paying industrial jobs, black workers often took service jobs. The late 19th century brought skyscrapers to Chicago, and these new office spaces and office workers meant new downtown restaurants, restaurants that needed waiters. But within the service industry, there was still the need to organize and struggle for fair wages and working conditions. And in Chicago, these struggles played out in a somewhat unconventional way. One of the things that I write about, which is fairly unusual, is what emerges in the 1890s is a biracial union of waiters in downtown Chicago, one of the very few examples of biracial unionism in this period. And they work together to get higher wages and recognition of the waiters' union. And it works pretty well for about a decade until the white waiters sort of turn on the black waiters and the whole union falls apart. Do you have theories about why that sort of biracial 
union was able to develop in Chicago? Was it just because that happened to be one profession where there was mixing of races? It's one profession where there's a mixing of races. It was um, black men and a lot of German waiters. A lot of German men were waiters. And Germans had a kind of, well, they have a sort of anarchist tradition in this period, but also a sort of more activist tradition. And so I think there may be some greater openness among the German waiters to organize with black waiters. But there was also just a recognition among some of the organizers of the union that the only way they could succeed was to bring black waiters into the union. This all worked pretty well until the summer of 1903, when a strike from the waiters union prompted new tactics from employers. After that, and during that strike, the hotel and restaurant owners in the city begin hiring um, white women as waitresses. And part of what happens, their reaction to the waiters, the male waiters union, is to shift the demographics of the service industry and begin to bring in women who they think will be more compliant, more passive, less willing to join unions, which isn't true. By the teens, these young women are organizing themselves. But it's part of the sort of demographic shift within the service industry. And, you know, as you know, waitresses come to dominate the service industry beginning by the 1920s and 1930s. So it's a really interesting response of employers. You break the union by just finding newer, low-wage hopefully more passive workers, to, to step in and take on these jobs. These, you know, shifting demographics in the service industry, it does seem like a social justice issue, but people are being blocked out of jobs. And I know your new book is titled Of Rights and Justice. Actually, no, I changed the oh, title. Changed the but title? <laughs> okay, that was on your website. <laughs> that, was, that was an older title, okay. yes. But perhaps some of that focus has remained if the title has changed. So just I was curious, what sort of social justice issues do you think were going on in Chicago in this time period that may or may not be different than the types of economic and racial social justice issues that people focus on today? So one is the rise of organized labor, um, workers attempting to organize to counter the power and influence of their employers. And so that's going on. And as I said, it leads to tremendous violence, really, in the streets of cities, not just Chicago, but all over the country. When workers go on strike, employers send in private security forces and often are able to draw on the state and get state militias and federal troops to come in to force workers to go back to work and break strikes. So the struggles of organized labor to improve the conditions of their work, improve wages, is one of the major, major stories of the late 19th century. The other is the emergence of a whole range of social reform movements. And these are sort of largely young, single women. Many of them are part of the first generation of women to go to college. Often they come out of abolitionist families, so out of a sort of reform tradition in their own families. And they go to college, they leave college, and sort of try to, are wondering what to do. And Jane Addams, who's probably the most famous of these women, calls it the question of between the social claim and the family claim. So do you get married and have children and raise good, patriotic, virtuous children, or do you go out and try and improve society? And Adams, like a number of young women, decide to devote their energy, or at least a few years of their lives, to improving society. 
So Adams and a friend of hers, Ellen Gates Starr, go to Chicago and they purchase what had been a kind of old farmhouse on the west side of Chicago. It was now in this, surrounded by this impoverished immigrant district in the 19th Ward. It was, had been owned by a man named Charles Hull, so they call it Hull House. And the idea is that in order to help the urban poor, you have to live among them and try to understand them. And the idea is to try to build what Adams calls a cooperative commonwealth, to bring some kind of harmony among all of these diverse groups of people across class, across nationalities, across differences in religion and language and culture. Um, And so Hull House becomes a kind of community center that welcomes all the neighborhood immigrants to come. They open a kindergarten, they open an employment agency, they bring in speakers from the new University of Chicago. Adams gets herself appointed the garbage inspector for the neighborhood. And she goes out and finds, of course, that the company that has the contract for collecting garbage in the city is completely corrupt and not picking up garbage at all. And so she puts pressure on municipal officials to make them collect the garbage and clean up some of the streets and alleys in the city. Clearly, Adams and her contemporaries were doing real good at Hull House. But they were also trying to change the way that society actually thought about poverty. They come up with sort of new theories about what are the causes of urban poverty. They argue that poverty isn't caused by a flaw in the character or lack of piety or lack of morality or even by some inherent so-called racial traits. But in fact, it's caused by a dangerous environment. They argue that living in an impoverished neighborhood filled with dirt and disease and rundown tenements really helps to explain why so many people are poor and continue to be poor. They do a lot of studies of the neighborhood. Um, and then Florence Kelly, who becomes sort of Adam's major sort of political partner in this period, arrives at Hull House. And she gets herself appointed the factory inspector for the state of Illinois and begins investigating sweated labor in the west side of Chicago and working to improve working conditions for the immigrant poor in the city. So with all these efforts, both on the streets and in the political sphere, were the founders of Hull House successful in alleviating urban poverty? And what lessons can be brought to modern-day urban issues? They're enormously effective within their community. They're enormously effective in publicizing the plight of the urban poor and a whole range of social problems. But it's really not until the New Deal in the 1930s that any of the policies that they're promoting ever gets institutionalized in law. I would say one more thing about them, because I think it's important in today's environment, is they really believe in the power of government to do good. They believe that government should intervene to regulate the economy and that government can be a force for good in society. And so they're aim is to publicize social problems, draw public attention to those problems, and then they believe in a democratic society, the public will vote to pressure government to implement policies and laws and regulations that will improve society. So it's a really optimistic vision about the possibility of improving society. It's an optimistic vision of government and of democracy. I really love that story. (laughs) I know, I mean, they're like sort of my favorite reformers of this era. Many thanks once again to Margaret Garb for contributing to Hold That Thought. If you haven't heard the first part of our talk, you can find it, along with other ideas to explore, at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.art.wustl.edu.
sci.wusdl.edu.